This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Lasting. Okay, so Lasting is the nation's number one relationship counseling app. They've distilled decades of research into accessible five-minute sessions designed to give you the right tools for building a healthy marriage. Lasting is backed by the world's leading wedding resource, The Knot, and they've also been featured on ABC News, The Today Show, Good Morning America, and Bustle. Download Lasting in the App Store or the Google Play Store today and totally give it a spin. It's free to download and get started with their Marriage Health Intro Series. Just visit getlasting.com good to get the nation's number one relationship counseling app and to help support this podcast. One more time, that's getlasting.com good. Lasting, marriage counseling made simple. All right, now here comes the show. The internet is an incredible thing, (laughs) understatement of the year. Uh, It has so much power to bring us together, to connect us, to keep us informed, to make a difference in the world. We all know this. Our community cares deeply about how we can use the internet for good. But I don't think that there's anybody out there who would argue that it has no downsides. Obviously, there are significant problems with the way that the internet and technology uh, are impacting so many people. I think about headlines uh, like this one from Forbes that says, chronic loneliness is a modern day epidemic. Or this one from the Washington Post that says, is the internet giving us all ADHD? And even this one from CNN that says, Instagram is named the worst social media app for young people's mental health. These all make sense to me. I think that we've all, to some degree, experienced a sense of anxiety or feeling overwhelmed by, you know, technology and and the internet. And I feel like this 24-7 modern world is is messing with our minds. And and I've been processing all of this in the way that bad news, especially as technology has grown, has had such a huge effect on us and what impact social media has had on my well-being as I've kind of grown a bit of an audience on social media and, and how that's maybe affecting the other people in my life as well. And in the midst of all of these thoughts, this kind of tornado of, of wondering, does the good outweigh the bad here? I, I picked up this book. It's called Notes on a Nervous Planet. And it's written by one of my favorite authors, Matt Haig. And Matt dove into all of this. I, I felt like he was reading my mind. He wrestled with all of this on a really deep and personal level. And I think he was able to do that because uh, Matt suffers with anxiety and depression and panic disorder. And he even says that uh, he suffers with addiction to his devices. And so for him, it just made sense that perhaps the external world has the ability to impact his mental health and all of our mental health. Of course, in both positive but also negative ways. And 
It was such a pleasure because after I read the book, I, I got to have Matt on the podcast. And that's the episode that you're about to listen to. Matt is a big deal. Matt is an internationally best-selling author. I am a huge fan of his. I first found him on Twitter and just, I, I really appreciated his words and what he was doing with social media. And so I sought out uh, his thoughts in formats longer than 140 or 280 characters. My favorite books of his, because I've been talking a lot about books on social media, are, of course, his book, uh, Reasons to Stay Alive, which I'm sure many people listening to this have read. Also, he wrote an incredible book called The Humans, and, uh, oh, his most recent book was also wonderful. It's called How to Stop Time. But his newest, newest book, uh, the one that I just told you I read is called Notes on a Nervous Planet and it's already a hit in the UK. It came out months ago uh, in the UK. It comes out in the United States I think next week Uh, but it's already been a number one Sunday Times bestseller for eight straight weeks. Anyway, it was such a treat to have Matt on the podcast and I loved this conversation we got to have that dove into all of these things his personal story, his experience with depression and suicidal ideation and how he came out of that on the other end and and then how he's also just taking care of himself in the midst of all of these, you know, 21st century technologies that we're all trying to figure out together. If you don't know me, I am Brandon Harvey. This is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We believe that our lives are more complex than that. And so we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. So without any further ado, let's jump straight into my conversation. Okay, so Matt, you have quickly become one of my absolute favorite authors. I uh, I think that I started by following you on Twitter and was like, I like this guy. I feel like we get along. Uh, I'm going to read some of his books. And so I started off with The Humans and then loved it and really quickly read maybe four more of your books within a few months. And so maybe I just want to bring this back to the beginning and just ask, when did you start writing? When did you start feeling like you were a writer? You know, it makes me feel incredibly old now at the start. When you look at one of my um, books in England and you look at the, you know, when you have a novel and they have a long list of books at the front, I've written something like <laughs> 16, 16 what? books. Wow. But I would say, actually, a, a lot of those books I feel were written by someone else they weren't literally written by someone else but I feel like I've become such a different writer from where I started off at and actually that book you first read The Humans that was the most fun I've ever had writing a book and that was the first time I really really um, found my the level of confidence I needed to be at as a writer because up until that point I was very insecure I wasn't well-known even in my own country and not that many people read me and I was trying to be this writer that I wasn't already and I was pretentious, I feel, in some of those earlier novels. And The Humans was the first time I thought, 
I can just write what I want to write. I can write the book I would wish to read right now. I don't have to worry about the marketing terms, what this book is or what this book isn't. And, you know, um, is it science fiction? Is it romance? Is it, you know, literary? Is it commercial fiction? And just, I just wrote sort of in that sort of health lever, carefree spirit. And um, since then, I've tried to keep that spirit going and just ignore you know because you have I suppose it's like any field certainly any creative field you get a lot of pressure from outside um they want to understand what you are and where they should place you in the shop or online and and what category you fit in and I try and resist that as much as I possibly can and sort of go where I want to go and I've been very lucky that the people who read me generally tend to follow me across those genre divide so you know if i'm writing fiction they'll read my non-fiction about mental health they'll read uh, even my children's books some adults have read but you know i've written for children and stuff and i like that that people get the similarity between the things even though it's not necessarily a similarity um that a bookseller would would necessarily agree you you wouldn't be put in the same part of the shop necessarily but the readers sort of join the dots and and see the same that is really interesting because you have written children's books you've written science fiction and then you've written two books on mental health and you know these aren't things this isn't a common thread that a lot of authors kind of take that meandering path but all of the books that i've read at least feel like there is a common thread and it seems like even in The Humans, which is about an alien that shows up on Earth and kind of takes the body of a professor, like, I feel like I can kind of, I see your personality, and I, I mean, obviously your style, but like, I see some of your narrative and your story within this. And, and so that's really interesting to hear that that's the first book that actually felt like you brought something unique and fresh and uh, maybe more a part of you to the table. I think so. I think... Um, it was also the first time I was writing optimistically because oh. my first books were very well. My third book was a book called The Possession of Mr. Cave, and I would recommend if anyone ever happens to come up across it in some distant corner of a bookshop anywhere, do not read that book. It's a bleakest <laughs> thing. It's the bleakest thing I've ever written. It's like you know when you have really bad photos of a style you had like 15 years ago and you can't look at it because it reminds you of a bad time and you think, oh, what were you doing? That is the equivalent of one of those photos for me. I really find it hard. And also I was quite depressed when I wrote it and I, I was in such a bleak mindset and not everyone dies, but it's kind of one of those books where you feel like, oh my goodness, everyone's going to die. And um, I, I think that was my sort of lowest point as a writer. And after that, all kinds of different things happened in my life. Um, I, I, I recovered in part over my depression. I uh, We had children. Um, various other moments in my life happened, and it, it sort of changed me. It, it thought that if I'm going to create something, if I'm going to actually be self-indulgent enough to put something out into the world you know there's not a shortage of books if you're a writer and you're writing a book and wanting it to be published you know you're not fulfilling a fundamental need you know there's enough good stuff out there to last us all a lifetime so i feel like if you're if you're sort of self-indulgent enough to put a book out there put, make it have something 
useful in it or positive in it or try and find some hope. Now, I used to be very cynical about, you know, things being wrapped up too neatly or having happy endings or happy songs and all of that. But the older I get, I feel like actually there's an authentic way of doing that. There's an authentic kind of optimism. And actually my experience with me, it sounds really weird to say it, but I feel like my experience of mental health stuff, of depression, anxiety, panic disorder, all these various overlapping things I experience, my experience of that made me an optimist because obviously when you're in a state of depression, you're very pessimistic and you've got very, you know, when you're at those lowest points, that's one of the symptoms. You've got a very sort of bleak outlook and there's nothing you can really do in that moment. But when you sort of recover from that, um, you realize so much of that stuff in your head was false. And, and so many of those fears of high anxiety and stuff were, were false. And you should, optimism would have actually been a more rational standpoint. And yeah, obviously, any life has bad stuff happen in it. But that view where literally the worst case scenario in every situation is going to happen, you know, that's so wrong. So I actually felt um like it would be useful to actually go to these bad places go to miserable situations and then within that find the hope find the authentic bit of light in the dark around it and i feel that's that tends to be my approach now to sort of take someone often quite a miserable character or someone who's in a, a difficult situation but then the, the point of the story the point of the book will be to try and find the hope inside that. I think that's really remarkable and I think that that's the most the most authentic form of what hope is. That's something that we kind of lean into, you know, here on the podcast and with, you know, our newspaper that we make the good newspaper. It's largely inspired by this quote from Fred Rogers where he says, "When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. He's not saying like when everything is great, everything is grand, you know, look for the helpers. They'll be all around. Like that feels meaningless and unimportant. But for some reason in the midst of the heartbreak and the pain and the suffering and a, a dark place, it's so much more meaningful to find the helpers there or to find the hope there. And so I, I, I like that as a, as a prompt for you to lean into of saying, okay, let's, <laughs> let's find a dark situation and then find the hope within that for these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's quite comforting for people because obviously if you're in a bit of a bad place or you're having a tough time yourself, you don't necessarily want total unicorns and rainbows and everything is perfect <laughs> all of the time and the happy people. You want, you want to see people who are having challenges in their life but you want to feel some kind of resilience or some kind of authentic optimism within that, I think. I think that's the nourishing thing for me. I was so scared when I was ill of reading about depression because I thought, oh, my goodness, anything I read is going to make me feel worse and all of this. And then I wrote this book about my own experience with depression called Reasons to Stay Alive. And I set myself the challenge of trying to write about depression in a way that wasn't depressing. To write about something that's horrible that doesn't make you feel horrible. And, um, you know, I'm not saying I 100% did that for everybody, but my reader was me at 24 when I could hardly read 
anything, you know, let alone about mental health, and to actually see if there was some way of putting words in that person's head that would give them the tools they needed to not miraculously get better overnight, but to actually believe that there is a different future waiting for them, that they would become someone else and that someone else would be um, feeling very differently about life than that 24-year-old. I would say that you did accomplish that. I feel like that was the impression that I got from the book. And it's really fascinating the way that you approached it because it starts off with this first chapter where you're literally on a cliff's edge in a villa in a in a beautiful place in in Europe and you are are incredibly ill and and it basically follows you through the process of of healing and growing and getting better but it's not that it happens overnight and it's not that it's a clear narrative structure because you know obviously it's it's a lifelong battle and and a series of choices, but you did such an incredible job of of sharing your very lowest moment and helping people realize that their lowest moment, like, will literally be their lowest moment, and there will be higher moments beyond that. You know, and I think that that's, I think that you handled that really remarkably. And maybe you could even just share a little bit of, you know, that story of of what it was like, you know, being at that low moment in that villa and kind of those first few days of kind of finding healing and hope and and kind of backing away from that ledge. Okay. Well, I was 24 years old and at the age of 24, you know, people age differently, you know, in their younger years. And I was still at 24, not one of those people who who knew what they wanted to do in life. I was a bit of a, um, we would say a bit of a waster. I was sort of like, sort of, floating around not really landing and not knowing what to do me and my girlfriend Andrea had gone to Spain for the last three summers Um, we were working for a bar and nightclub and hotel over there and I was someone who was sort of escaping to um, alcohol a lot go out partying um, not living a very particularly healthy life during the summers but on that third summer, we were t- sort of getting our act together. It felt like we were getting our act together. Um, we weren't going out all the time. Um, we were living in this very nice villa with a boss, basically, who was n- hardly ever there. So it, it effectively felt like we were having this um, very nice, very quiet villa to ourselves on uh, in Ibiza. And um, it was two weeks before I was due to go back to London to... Um, work or at least try and get jobs and face up to adulthood and that was preying on my mind um and then one but I wasn't really feeling depressed I I never saw myself in those terms I didn't know much about depression I think you know when I've looked back with hindsight there were all kinds of things going on but I noticed none of that until one morning I was relatively healthy for how I was then you know I'd been for a run that morning hadn't smoked any cigarettes hadn't drunk any alcohol then at 11 in the morning I just started to feel really really strange I had this sensation in the back of my head I thought I was about to die Um, then I had lots of other very physical sensations so I thought this was something physical that was happening to me 
And it was, it was a panic attack. Um, but I didn't realize this, this was a panic attack because my idea of a panic attack was something that was something you, you'd get in a supermarket and then you'd walk out or breathe into a brown paper bag and 10 minutes later, <laughs> you're better. This was a sort of panic that just didn't end. This was like a full-blown um, breakdown. And I, I, I had no idea what was going on. And very quickly, the terror, because you... You're feeling symptoms of terror, and then on top of the symptoms of terror, you're terrified of those symptoms. So you're in this snowball, and it was horrendous for um, a, quite a long time, quite a few days and weeks. Um, we were in another country, so we'd have to go to a Spanish medical center. I was prescribed some very um, strong doses of Valium, diazepam, which actually in that situation made me feel worse i felt more out of control so it felt like you know we were trying things it wasn't working i didn't you know people were saying you don't look ill and i thought yeah i don't look ill so what you know was i possessed by an alien you know all kinds of weird things were going through my head and i felt i i just can't cope with this amount of stuff going on in my head so I, you know, I did nearly take my own life and we were, you know, I nearly threw myself off a cliff, but that wasn't from any kind of death wish. I was not the sort of person, I wasn't the archetypal suicidal teenager or the cliche of any of those things who'd had any kind of death wish or interest in death at all. It was just, I was suddenly very scared because I thought, how am I going to cope? with this new thing that's going on that I don't understand, that even the doctor doesn't seem to understand, this sort of painful thing uh, where I could hardly leave the house, I could hardly leave my girlfriend's side. I thought, I can't, you know, I, I've got my whole life ahead of me and there's no way I'm going to get out of this, which sounds pathetically melodramatic when I'd only had it for a few days when I was starting to feel like that. But that's how it made me feel. And it was a, a very... Um, big challenge for me just to get on the plane and go home and then see my parents and hug them and then you'd feel sort of ill but on top of the illness you'd also feel guilt because everyone's worried about you and and it's it's not like a um typical physical um illness where you could sort of point to your leg or your chest and say this is what's going on you know it, it it's harder to explain with mental health stuff, people often feel um, guilty, um, you, you know, not just a person experiencing it, but like parents and stuff, you know, it has implications for people and they don't know how to handle it and they, 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 they want to sort of put the best spin on it. And I found it very, very hard. I was incredibly lucky that I, I was in a strong relationship with my girlfriend. We'd been together five years. So since we were teenagers, we'd been together since we were 19. And she wasn't a mental health expert. She hadn't known of anyone outwardly with mental health problems in her family who talked about them or anything. She wasn't a doctor or anything. But just the fact that she was a someone, I didn't have to wear the mask. I could literally let it all out. I could tell her with confidence what I was feeling. That's I think huge. having that valve was so useful. And um, I'm not saying that alone saved my life, but that was something I wouldn't have wanted to have done without because it just gave me that oxygen to just sort of 
be myself in some space. So I, I feel like, you know, that person doesn't have to be a partner. It can sometimes be a parent or a sibling or a friend or a doctor or whatever. But I think if you find that one person when you're in those moments of pain, it's so useful to have that person who you can speak to. But, you know, with me, because I I had that experience of the diazepam, the Valium that hadn't worked properly, I had to go a kind of a long slow path i was very put off and deterred from going the official medical way which i i should have done but one of my symptoms was this sort of fear of getting help and i had this idea that i'd be sent off to hospital and that i'd be in a straitjacket and all these ridiculous things i think largely because my not my story of mental health came from very limited sources i think i'd seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest about a hundred times when I was a kid. And so all my imagery was of, you know, electric shock treatments and hospitals. And, and that was it. That's all I had. And I didn't know that, you know, there was a, a, a massive gray area between sanity and insanity. You know, we're all on that area somewhere. And so I didn't understand it. I, I just assumed I was going to go mad. But one thing that happened was... Because I was in this state of panic disorder, and it was panic disorder initially, and panic disorder is a horrible thing because you basically with panic disorder, all of the time, you're either in a panic attack or in mortal fear of the next panic attack. So it's deeply unpleasant. It's the sort of far end of anxiety disorders. It's a state of terror a lot of the time. But for me, um, and I've had bouts of it, again in, in sort of later life but it always eventually runs out of steam and I think for me the reason that happens is because it fills up your brain with so many wrong things for instance it convinced me that I would be dead at the age of 25 so you get to the age of 25 you're still alive it convinced me that Andrea would sort of walk out of me she didn't uh, she could have done but she didn't and so I was in the lucky timeline where she didn't it tells you that, you know, you're, you're going to be in a hospital by the end of the day. You're going to be this, that, and the other. So, you know, sometimes bad things do happen in your external life. But the view of panic disorder coupled with depression, you know, that worst-case scenario happening all the time, that does not happen. So slowly you're, you build up this rational self where it thinks that, well, I've been on a train before and I've had this panic attack before on a train and nothing actually happened. So, yes, I'm going to get on this train. I'm going to have a panic attack. But the things the panic attack are telling me will happen on this train won't actually happen. It's a slow process because things you can imagine vividly have incredible power. Even if you can rationally say, well, it's not going to happen. You feel If you feel something so strongly as you do in an extreme sort of anxiety disorder, it's very hard to rationalize yourself out of it. And I think this is the frustration for people who deal with people with mental health problems. They say, well, you know, you're not crazy. We can, you know who you are. Why, why can't you? But they underestimate the, the power of those feelings. So I, I think that, that sense of my brain slowly correcting itself and realizing that things weren't happening, that um, the condition were telling me would happen, coupled with a sense as kind of determination that I found inside myself where I was determined not to be ruled by it. So even though I was thinking about it all the time because it was that was the nature of a condition, I was determined to do things that made me feel uncomfortable. So 
I was petrified of becoming a full-blown agoraphobic who, who literally couldn't leave a house. So I'd force myself to the corner store um, just to get a pint of milk and a jar of, you know, every British person's favorite um, spread on toast, uh, some Marmite as well. And <laughs> I would force myself into those uncomfortable situations and just do them over and over again. And I almost had like, um, I sometimes had the Rocky theme tune, the sort of, you know, the training music in my head just to sort of overcome it. And it was like, it was a sort of sports movie on a tiny scale where even walking to the shop was some incredible task. Yeah, it took weeks. It took months. Um, we, we had the normal problems of life. We had no money. We were in debt. Um, my parents were getting a little bit frustrated because we were spending too much time at their house. So we had to get our own house and we had all that life stuff going on. You know, I, I couldn't work really. You know, one of the reasons I ended up being a writer was it was one thing that you can do without leaving the house because the idea oh. of an office job was going to be impossible. So all of that, um, was going on. There was no one single moment where I thought, oh, I'm better. There were little glimpses of things that would happen like one day it was just a simple thing we were in a city called Leeds which is in the north of England near Manchester and we were just walking into town one day and the sun came out it was April the sun came out it was a nice spring day and there was a little moment with the sun out on my face where I was I was starting to think about work I was starting to think about an email I had to send to somebody and it wasn't a happy thought necessarily, but it was a thought that wasn't about being ill. And I'd just been so drowning in these thoughts of illness that I thought, I'm going to feel like this forever. I'm going to think of this forever. And the fact that I, I knew that I, I was thinking about something that wasn't the illness meant that I knew there'd be other times where that 30 seconds could become a minute. That could, could become two minutes. It could become an hour. It could, could become a day. I could go a whole morning and afternoon without you know, being bogged down with that, those thoughts. And that did eventually happen. There were dips and troughs and, you know, peaks and troughs all the way through. But uh, eventually I got to a point where I'd have whole months, even whole years without being obsessed about being ill. So there was no moment at which I felt, oh, this is it, I'm better. But there were definitely periods at which I thought, I can do this. I can get over it. And I did to a degree. I'm someone who resists thinking in terms of 100% full health, whether it's physical health, whether it's mental health. Um, I avoid that because I feel like the moment you feel that and then something goes wrong, you can very easily be thrown back to the start, back to the sort of ground zero. So I, I try and avoid feeling like that and, and feel like it's more like a garden that we have to sort of tend to. But I would say I have known more happiness, more moments of joy this side of 24 than I ever did before. I'm 43 years old now, which itself is an impossible fact for my younger self. You know, I had no idea I'd make it this far. Uh, um, the things I enjoy in life now, it's a far wider range of life experiences I enjoy to when I was 24. I mean, I suppose a lot of people can say that, but I think that's partly in my case to do with the experience of depression and panic because I'm just sort of grateful now. I'm thankful for the people I have in my life and just for the sort of neutral experience of being and being alive, which I, I never really had before. And so it gives you, yes, 
it's a lot of darkness and you've got it in your past and you've got a lot of unpleasant memories and you've got the possibility that you'll have other patches ahead of you. But that the, the great thing about having some kind of darkness in your life is it also accentuates the light. And I feel yeah. like that contrast of light and shade has defined my life, but it's made the light so much brighter. And that's, uh, you know, that, that sounds corny, but in my case, that's fundamentally what I believe. So yeah, I, it's the process of living day to day, you know, not feeling like, you know, feeling like this could happen again, but also feeling, well, if it did happen again, I would be able to survive. That book was called Reasons to Stay Alive. What would you say was one of the biggest, quote unquote, reasons to stay alive that you've seen resonate with your community? Like what's what's something that you've seen, you know, be carried far and wide since this book came out and became a bestseller? Yeah, I mean, often, you know, people think when you call a book Reasons to Stay Alive, you know, that it'll necessarily be a list of lovely things like sunsets and ice cream and <laughs> peanut butter and all of that and i love i love all those things and i love loads of stuff about life and music and art and books and all those things but i think for, for me if i'm actually in that moment of crisis uh, you know it's very hard to even understand that you'll one day care about music or art or people you know in the same way you do when you're well so I think for me, the most important reasons to stay, reason to stay alive and the one that I only got by staying alive long enough and holding on is the idea that we we become other people. We're still ourselves. We are still, there's some, some fundamental part of it that is still us, but that us is evolving. It changes. So it's very easy, especially when you're young, I think, to believe that when you're first in that pit, that you're just going to stay you're just going to stay there as that person forever. And there's a, a when you're writing about depression, I think because it's so abstract, you often resort to metaphors. I certainly do. I, I'm a big fan of metaphors in terms of explaining it because it, it helps people see it. But I feel like if you're at that bottom of the valley, you don't have the view. You're, you're literally at the bottom of the valley, so you can't see. You need to walk slowly up that hill before you can see things clearly again. And when you're at the top of that hill, you can see that your life is going to have, you know, parts that are better, parts that are worse, but you're not going to be the same person. No one is the same person they were 10 or 20 years ago. We evolved. So even if someone feels like they've got nobody in their life at that moment, that may may, may not be true. But if they feel like they've got nobody in their life, no partner, no close friend who's understanding them about this, I would say still hold on for other people. Stay hold on hold on for the other people you're going to be, the other people who will be thankful that you held on. Uh, hold on for the other people you don't know yet, the other people, the other experiences you're going to have. So really the reasons, reasons to stay alive are always unknown. It's always an act of faith, but I believe they're always there because the moment you hold on is the moment you have made a better future for yourself because you will always remember that moment of holding on and be be thankful for that. I really love that. That I've got that highlighted in my copy of the book. Uh, you know, when you kind of talk about this idea of, you know, when you're in the valley, like you're never going to be able to see as well. And so I think that's super profound. And I guess I'm curious, why did you decide after writing all of these novels to write a book about your own story and 
dive into mental health? That's a good question. I mean, there's a sort of boring, prosaic answer in the sense that Reasons <laughs> to Stay Alive, that was the first book. It was book number 10. I'd written um, nine books before that that hadn't always been very well read, even in my own country. Not many people had read them. Um, but I'd, I'd written, before Reasons to Stay Alive, for Humans, which had done quite well and had put me on the radar in the UK. It'd been a bestseller and more people were hearing about me. So I felt a little bit more confident in terms of writing what I wanted to write. But also I've got a friend called Kathy who works in the book industry and she's experienced depression herself. And she said, I should write a book about depression. And all I'd done, all I'd um, written about depression before was one single blog post. But that blog post had been called Reasons to Stay Alive. And it was um, a list that's actually included in the book in a slightly different form. It's just a list of 10 reasons to stay alive. And uh, she said, turn it into a book. But I, And I said, what kind of book? And she said, well, like a memoir. And I said, but I'm not a celebrity. I didn't understand why that would be interesting <laughs> to people. My um, experience of depression was, and that panic disorder was intense but it was a relatively common one and she said well yes that's the reason you should write the book because then people will relate to it because you're you know inverted commas like them and you've got through it and, and all of this and it took me about a year to work out how to do it whether it was a memoir whether it was a self-help book you know as I said at the beginning I kind of ignored all the sort of bookseller marketing definitions and just tried to write what I wanted to write. And I had myself at the age of 24 as my reader. So I was, that helped steer the ship. I was imagining putting this in a bottle and sending it back through time. And so I wasn't trying to write an academic book. I wasn't trying to write the last word about depression, and anxiety. I wasn't even trying to come up with any radical new theories or anything. I wasn't trying to do a TED Talk. What I was trying to do was just send this message back to this 24-year-old on a literal and metaphorical cliff edge and give that person um, reason to stay alive. And hopefully that would resonate with people in a similar situation. It's been my most popular book in this country, and I didn't think that at the time. My publishers, my UK publishers, definitely didn't think so. I got um, much less money to write it, and it was definitely seen as something that I wanted to do, but it was seen as this, this sort of small side project. And then it became this word-of-mouth thing, and then it became the main sort of event in my career, I suppose. And um, I struggled with that, weirdly, for a while, because I, I, I was in this new role where people would introduce you as like a mental health ambassador, and things like that. And I, I, I'm, I'm never good at responsibility. And I thought, oh, what, what am I meant to, you know, I'm just a person who's gone through something and wrote it down. I don't, <laughs> you know, so I'd be getting emails from people often in quite hard situations in my life. And I, I would struggle with what to say to them and what to do for a little while. And it actually brought out anxiety in me it sounds incredibly whiny to sort of moan about a book being successful and then people contacting you but I, I struggled because people would be telling me their symptoms and stuff and I'd start to think oh I could get those symptoms and things like that and I you know it was just a but, bit of a strange transition so then I wrote um children's books about Santa Claus afterwards and I escaped completely and it took me about a year to sort of just absorb it all and actually think 
come on, Matt, this it's a good thing. It's all good. And um, yeah, out of all my books now, I would say I, I'm most, I'm not saying it's my best book, but I, I'm most pleased I've written that book because I think it's been the most use to people. And it's nice to be useful. I mean, my wife was 24 when she read your book, and it was deeply helpful to her as somebody who had dealt with depression uh, for years. And and so I, I love that it was written for, you know, the 24-year-old you, because it impacted, you know, my wife at 24, but also I, I can imagine so many other people. And I also want to talk about your new book, which, you know, is you circling back into this idea of kind of mental health, but, you know, in a little bit of a different way. It's called Notes on a Nervous Planet. And when I read that first chapter, that first section, it felt like a breath of fresh air. It felt, I felt so known because I felt like this is something that, I don't know, something that just people we're all collectively feeling, but I hadn't seen language for it. And the thing that especially connected with me, it was this idea that there's so much excess in the world and that's a huge driving force for what's making us nervous. And I feel like I'm constantly thinking about the experiences I haven't had yet, even when I'm in the middle of having great experiences like Last year, I went on an amazing vacation with my wife. It was something we'd dreamed about since before we were married. And while I was still there, I was dreaming up what our next vacation would be. Or uh, like in 2018, I consumed 92 books, which I mean, I feel like I probably crossed a line. But at the same time, I feel like I barely scratched the surface of the stories and the books and the information that I wanted to ingest. And so it's interesting because all of that gives me a sense of anxiety and nervousness. And I think that maybe collectively around the world, we're all kind of experiencing this. And so, I don't know, I was so happy when I got to read this book. I guess I'm curious what the inspiration was behind this one. Like, why deciding to write this now, you know, yeah, I I just want to hear more. <laughs> well, as I say, it took some time for me to sort of process having written the first book. And I did definitely didn't want to write Reasons to Stay Alive 2. Yes. And I didn't want to necessarily um, even write another mental health book until I had something to say and a reason to write it. I think I learned a lot in the sort of four years between those two books. Um, and I, I started to see connections between how I'm feeling and how other people are feeling in terms of the wider world. And also it coincided with that sort of sea change that happened in 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, where things radically seemed to change. They changed on your side of the Atlantic, they changed on our side of the Atlantic with things like Brexit. And there seemed to be this collective sense of anxiety that would be be felt emanating from twitter timelines it seemed to be felt everywhere and that was just symptomatic of a sort of general um consumerist anxiety that you'd be fed through advertising uh, and it was something i touched on slightly i was nearly getting there in reasons to stay alive there's a little chapter where i talk about how the world is kind of designed to depress us in many ways because you know, if we were happy, if we were complete, if we felt satisfied with what we had, why would we 
want to keep buying things? Why would we want to keep consuming things? And although that's a potentially depressing idea that a lot of advertising, a lot of marketing and stuff is fundamentally bad for our health and sometimes even consciously playing with our mental health. Now that's kind of distressing and depressing. It's actually, there's a comfort I find with actually connecting your state of mind to external circumstances. For me, the most frightening thing, and the thing that one of the things that made me in, into that suicidal state was I had no idea where this was coming from. And obviously, as with physical health, there are random factors in mental health. There's, there's factors to do with our DNA, to do with our neurochemistry, to do with uh, amygdala and frontal lobe and all of this and the genetic makeup that we can't do anything about. But as also with physical health, there are things that we can do things about. And there are things that we know are bad for us and know that are good for us. With mental health, those things aren't always talked about so much. And we're in such a fast-changing world where even within the last decade, how we work, how we communicate with each other, how we fall in love, how you know, the amount of friends we have, the amount of social groups we have, how we how we consume our news. All of these things have changed um, beyond measure in a very short level of time. Now, you can believe those changes are uniformly bad or uniformly good or somewhere in between. But the thing that no one can deny is that it's been changed and change itself can be quite unsettling. So the idea behind Notes on a Nervous Planet is just to do, to place mental health in the kind of context we place physical health, to show that there are social and cultural factors um, that impact on it. And they're not always the same factors as physical health. I mean, some of them are. Exercise, sleep, diet is important for our mental health, but there are other things too. You know, the, the news, which I've mentioned, but um, Twitter and social media, that fear of missing out, um, you know, that fear of not being enough or not, looking good enough um that particularly young people are expected to feel young women in particular you know the, the rise within these 10 years of various kinds of anxiety disorders with hospitalizations from eating disorders all those things and that's happening collectively and that's happening around the developed world and while our technology is progressing fast while we're talking about technology and politics more and more we're not really talking about mental health within that context we are talking about mental health but we're not always joining the dots between its sort of the social factors which can exacerbate it and so this book wasn't i wasn't coming up with anything new all the research was there i wasn't doing my own fresh research what i was doing was trying to join the dots trying to do my uh, to to work out for myself why i was feeling like this why i was someone who for instance and you've probably seen it as you follow me on twitter would, <laughs> would have a, a weekend ruined by just choosing to argue with people but i would never meet you know who, who live in texas who had i would never have met in my normal life but choosing to have these pointless political arguments with people or being overly negative and to sort of understand that a bit more and hopefully do a bit less of it so that was um the reasoning behind it i think it's especially funny to to think about that in terms of social media, because that, you know, that is where you and I have interacted from time to time. And even today, you know, I know that uh, you were on Twitter 
getting a little bit angry at uh, Pierre Morgan, and I feel like yeah, that's basically always valid. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it's one of those things where we got to figure this out. We got to figure out how to deal with this. Yeah, and it's not easy because it's like it's there's something interesting about having this communal anger or conversation about injustice or conversation about people being tools, you know, whatever it is. But uh, how do we draw some lines for ourselves on how to be healthier with social media? Yeah, well, that thing of look for the helpers is always good good advice, Brandon, as you mentioned. And I, I, I feel like you have to engage. I feel like sometimes people almost see people who are cynical about things like mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy or the kind of Buddhism that gets interpreted in Western society, they, they, they see it as a kind of selfishness. And I don't, I don't think that I don't, I feel like there's a way of engaging with the world and way about caring with the world, way about caring about politics. That isn't bad. That doesn't make your mental health worse. Yeah. Cause I think the thing that makes mental health worse is, that feeling of powerlessness, when you feel out of control. And understandably, a lot of the news makes us feel out of control. We're we're continually, our brains are designed for sort of 30,000 years ago. They were perfectly equipped for 30,000 years ago, the amount of people we'd meet, the kind of information we get. That's what our our mind's made for. 30,000 years ago, people weren't learning about terrible things happening 8,000 miles away. They just never came across it. So I think often the solution is to just concentrate on things you can change, things you can do, whether it's giving a little bit of money to to a local charity or, um, you know, occasionally even even tweeting can be doing something, even acting on social media, so long as you're doing it mindfully and it's not making you feel worse if you're raising awareness of an environmental issue or something that can actually give you the feeling that you're doing something i feel like when it becomes too much and when you feel suffocated by it is when you're you're trying to put out every fire all at once and you know it's all around you i feel like if you have a little bit of a focus about what you want to do with social media you're a little bit of aware of the time you're spending on it and who you're interacting with, you know, what I used to do, and I am am becoming much better at, is what I used to be terrible at, is I would go on the internet to do something that was justified, that I was going to do something, and then I'd spend three hours on the internet, and then I'd log off the internet, and I realized I hadn't looked for the thing I was going to look at, you know, initially. It's so designed to distract us. All those, you know, YouTube headlines, you're never going to believe what happened to this, you know, uh, what what happened when this man ate a tarantula or something? I mean, if you oh, what <laughs> happened? And then you click on it, and it turns out to you know not to be that remarkable. But the headline clickbaited us into watching it, and we, we you know people are literally you know paying money to psychological consultants to actually work out the best way to sort of manipulate uh, our, our brains. And we like to believe in free will and self control, but it is being cleverly manipulated i find uh, the interesting thing for me researching the book is how a lot of the warnings and interesting comments about social media aren't coming from people who are the obvious people to be against it they're not coming from say an older generation who say oh it's much better when i was younger or something The, the starkest warnings about social media are coming from silicon valley they're coming from the people who 
who used to work there or you know um there's a guy uh who and i forget his name is josh somebody but he invented the um facebook like button and it was a big uh, interview in the guardian uh about he how he's got mixed feelings about doing that and it, you know um all kinds of different people are are voicing concerns from the inside and i think like we 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 should really be listening to these concerns rather than just sort of blindly um being led where advertising wants us to go but it's not just about social media i think it's every aspect of life it can be you know for women and even increasingly men it can be looking at perfect images on the cover of magazines that you know even the models themselves don't look like their photographs because they've been photoshopped and they look perfect and one difference as well between our sort of cave person ancestors and ourselves is that you know the cave people we our brains are equipped to be they 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 weren't knowing that many people you know they were geared i think the evolutionary psychologists say we were geared to know about 150 people yeah yeah 200 at most and that was during the course of an entire lifetime now you could encounter 150 new people and new faces just by scrolling through your instagram and of course we're not just um following random people yes we'll be following a few real real-time friends but generally we're we're following quite remarkable people we're, we're you know people follow supermodels or professional sports people or film stars in big social terms abnormal people yet they're people that we we follow and look up to and, and it takes a kind of strong mind to not feel slightly worse about your own life if you're surrounding if your brain is just surrounded by these apparently perfect looking people living these apparently perfect lives which obviously probably isn't the case but that's how we often are made to feel when we're looking at other people's social media profile and also it's not just that i think sometimes even with ourselves with the stuff that we post um, whether it's on instagram or facebook or wherever we notice a kind of gap between the online persona and ourselves. And it's kind of easy to fall through that sometimes because sometimes you'll, you'll post a happy update and you won't necessarily be feeling that happy update as you're mm. typing it, but you're, you're posting it and wanting to feel it and not necessarily. So there's a kind of disconnect with that. If you spend too much time online, I, I, I feel that that in itself can be a bit unhealthy too. One of the things I remember you mentioning about that in the book is that you have noticed that over time you spend more time with people on social media than in real life. And I know that that's been true for me, but that you intentionally decided to counteract that by at least once a week going out and spending time with people in real life. And, you know, that's one of those things where that oftentimes has to be a choice. You have to say, I'm going to do this thing. And I think it's it's a very wise smart idea and it's something that I've started to try to implement as well because it's so easy to just think that humans exist in this digital format. Yes. And also what's interesting is that I think it's UK research, but it probably applies to the US too. But they they've done some research into loneliness. And actually, you know, because we're in a kind of age of loneliness in some in some ways. But the loneliest generation in my country is the um not millennials it's the it's the young millennials and the uh, what they call generation z as we say generation z um who who are the most connected they're literally the most connected generation 
in history. And yet they are also scoring highest for their rates of loneliness. And so we're in this new age where loneliness isn't directly connected to being alone or not knowing people. Because young people, you know, they're out at college or university, they're very connected online, yet a lot of people are feeling alone. And I think we have got to sort of address that as a, as a health concern, um, because that's going to have all kinds of mental health consequences. But to be a little bit positive about it, because people say, oh, you know, it's going to get worse and worse. I think the reason to be positive about it is the people who are most aware of social media, say, as a potential health issue of technology and smartphones as a potential issue, as advertising and body image and making those connections. All the, the people who are most in tune with that is the young people. That I think the solutions are going to come from the same people who are who right now having problems and health affected by it. I think they're also going to be the ones who are going to grow up, you know, eventually maybe even talking about it in the way we talk about fast food, you know, where it's something that we can enjoy, but it's something we've got to be aware of can have health implications. Matt, I am loving all of this. I, I mean, I have, my book is tattered with, uh, with underlines and bookmarks and dog years. And there's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but I also know that uh, you've got to go. And so, you know, people are obviously going to have to read this book, but I want to leave with, you know, a practical question going into this next week. You know, people listen to this conversation. It resonates. They realize, okay, maybe I do live to some degree on a nervous planet and that's affecting me and making me nervous. How can we go out and practically push back against that nervousness, both in, you know, our personal lives, but collectively in our in our greater communities? What are some practical things we can do to fight for a little bit more health and intentionality? I think on a personal level, it's just a simple thing of realizing that you're enough. I feel like we're encouraged not to feel enough. We're encouraged to feel less, um, you know, to, to for whatever it is. We're encouraged to feel like we need a certain body to walk on a beach. You, you know, we have flaws on our face that need expensive solutions to correct. Um, and to understand that we're enough and to be as kind to ourselves as people were to uh, to a baby you know you no one looks at a newborn baby and sees a lack you know one thinks of all those things that they lack you know imagine if we could be as kind to ourselves as we are to the idea of a newborn human why does adulthood have to be this constant process of feeling ever more you know inadequate or insufficient i think we can just be sort of kind to ourselves and to understand that even if we had every solution that um you know marketing and advertising wants us to have there'd still be something else you're never going to buy your way into happiness or a permanent state of satisfaction so we really need to sort of just do that inward self-care and actually realize We've got essentially what we need. If we've got shelter, if we know where the next meal is coming from, if we're one of those lucky people who who have that, then we essentially have what we need. And a lot of those fears and anxieties that are programmed into us because of our evolution and whatever, you know, we, we've covered the bases. So we don't need to necessarily 
adds more anxieties or play into that game. So it's just about joining the dots and to looking at emotions and, and thinking, is that thing that I'm being told to buy, is that really going to make me happier? And I think on the um, broader sort of social political question, we feel, and it's almost like a burden now, we, we feel like we need to be up to date all the time um, with everything uh, that's going on. You know, in my country, everything to do with Brexit. In your country, everything to do with your current president. <laughs> we, we feel like we need to keep on top of everything all the time. And actually, you know, is that really that useful? Does there come a point where we have so much information we're actually paralyzed by it? I've got a, um, a Facebook friend, ironically, who's American. I can't remember where she lives, but um, she's called Deborah Morse. And um, she's a good friend uh, who I don't know in real life, which is a good thing about social media. We know people who um, we wouldn't know in real life. But anyway, she she's old enough to vividly remember the 70s. And she says, back in the 1970s, we had our news twice a day. So we had our morning um, newspaper and we had our 6 p.m. TV news roundup. And we still got rid of Nixon. We still had all this social change progressing forward and stuff. And, you know, I think there's a lesson for that now. We don't need constantly to be notified of every single news alert. So, you know, my advice would be if you feel... Um, like the news is getting down, do not feel guilty for not being up to speed on a daily, hourly, by minute basis. Um, it's perfectly okay and often necessary to take a step back. That's not saying you don't care about the world. That's actually saying, oh, I, I need to just take back and think about the world and think about my positions about things because you can get very embroiled in the day to day arguments. And so it's just having that perspective, that thing that we do with our own minds sometimes to be able to do it with the world too to just take a step back to breathe and to think and to understand that a lot of the things that we're worried about if we can't directly affect those things in that moment you know it's not really that useful to hold on to those worries Like I said before, I am a huge fan of Matt, and it was such a treat to get to have this conversation with him. Please, please, please go out and pick up some of Matt's books. They speak so clearly to so many of the conversations that we have on this podcast, and I think that you'll really enjoy them. Specifically, you're definitely going to want to check out Notes on a Nervous Planet. It it truly felt like a breath of fresh air. And while you're at it, you can follow Matt on Instagram and Twitter and visit his website, matthag.com. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you enjoyed this conversation, you would also love our conversation with Jamie Twerkowski, the founder of To Write Love on Her Arms, and I believe he was actually the first person to introduce me to Matt and his work. You can find that episode and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit subscribe to keep on getting more inspiring conversations with incredible people delivered straight to your phone while you sleep. And if you're a fan of the show, why don't you leave us a review? It takes a few seconds. Just search for Sounds Good in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And then just give a little review. Tell people what you like about the show. Share what your favorite episode is. Uh, it really helps people find the show. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. 
Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. We also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better. You can subscribe to it today. Uh, we've got a new issue coming out soon. So if you subscribe now, then you're going to get um, issue five, but also issue six. And I cannot wait for you to experience it. Uh, you can check it out and you can also see what else we do at Good 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 by visiting goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and do some good this week. And we'll be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person. Sound good? 